You know, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And they have experienced what all of us are going to experience when we share the gospel. They've had moments of great joy and sometimes of real heartbreak. Moments of sadness, great blessing. They've seen many of their fellow brother Jews come to faith in Christ as well as the Gentiles. And last week we saw in chapter 13 they've been commissioned by God to go reach the Gentiles. Um, of course they have faced personal hardship. They've been run out of towns, threatened with stoning. But the love of Christ just compels them to go on their mission. So when we come to chapter 14, the highs and the lows continue. But they are laying the groundwork for the gospel and all the new communities that the Holy Spirit leads them to. So when we look at the first three verses of chapter 14, we see how in Iconium that they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. Now last week, we studied how Paul and Barnabas were run out of the city and they felt God's call to go to the Gentiles. So it's interesting that the first city they go to, Iconium, they go to the Jews first again. So they haven't given up on their Jewish brothers. They go to the synagogue to preach the gospel. But increasingly, as we see over the next few chapters in the book of Acts, they're going to spend more and more of their time with the Gentiles. But here in Iconium, a large number of people of both groups, Jews and Gentiles, receive the gospel. And then we see in these first few verses how this causes the disbelieving uh, Jews to stir up trouble. And they're not content to stir up trouble among their own people, the Jews. They cross the chasm and try to stir up trouble with the Gentiles as well. Typically, Jews and Gentiles don't uh, mingle well together, but uh, here they cross lines. They, they kind of go to bed with, with the other folks because the gospel is so alarming to them. It says in verse 2 that the Jews embittered the Gentile against the brethren. Now, who are the brethren? Well, obviously, it's Paul and Barnabas, but I have to think the brethren are these new believers in Iconium, both Jews and Gentiles. So you have a picture here of the Jewish people crossing lines to go to the Gentiles to stir up trouble because some of the Jews have become believers and some of their Gentile friends have become believers. So my guess is they kind of attacked the situation something like this. They went to the Gentiles whom typically they didn't have much to, to do with, and said, you know, guys, you have family and friends who are embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, this is a strange religion, and it's going to cause problems. It is going to split your family. You know, because some of them are now going to become followers of Jesus, you're not going to see them anymore. They may well follow Paul and Barnabas out of this city. It, it would sort of be like, you know, if, if one of our family members, our, our friends, close friends, uh, were on the verge of joining a cult group. I mean, we would just see these walls being built between longtime friendships and in family. I remember when I first felt the call 
to the gospel ministry. My best friend, Russell, in high school, I mean, he just thought that was the end of things. In high school, he tolerated my being a Christian and always trying to drag him to youth events at church. But man, when I told him that I was going to, to, to go into ministry, he goes, well, that's it. Uh, you're going to go off to Baylor. You're going to go to Bible school. You're going to be a preacher. I'll never hear from you again. And I'm sitting there going, where'd that come from? I remember my uncle, uh, whom I'm named after, who, who never came to faith in Christ. He died in his sin. Um, his response was, huh, so, you're going to be a preacher. I mean, these walls came up. Now, faith in Christ, becoming a Christ follower can drive wedges in relationship, but from my experience, the issue has always been their problem, not mine. And I never quite understood it. My salvation never shut me off from people. It's given me a greater love for them to know my Savior. But some people, this threat of following Jesus, all they see is, man, things aren't going to be the same anymore. You're going to reject me. You're not going to be a part of the family. You're going to forget all about me. And I think that's some of what the stir was that the Jews were creating among the brethren, both Jews and Gentiles. But I love the response of Paul and Barnabas. Did you notice here in, in verse 3, therefore they spent a long time there. I want you to remember that because this is one of the key points I, I want us to remember today. They spent a long time there speaking boldly and relying upon the Lord. This is one of the main takeaways for today. Because it takes a long time to build relationships so that people can hear the gospel. It takes a long time to kind of calm people's fears down of what it means to follow Jesus. It takes a long time to let them know you're not going to reject them if you follow Christ. You're not going to be the one driving the wedges. A long time so that the gospel can be effective. Jerry mentioned a while ago that this uh, Wednesday night we're going to have prayer time for our teachers because our teachers spend a long time working with students as a new school year starts. Next nine months, they're going to spend hours with students. And as I mentioned last week, the largest unreached people group in America are those who are 18 years old and younger. And so we want to commission them. We want to pray over our teachers this Wednesday evening. Our elders will be hosting this prayer time from 7 to 8 o'clock. They've invited teachers um, that are connected with four or five different campuses. And uh, if you know other teachers that would like to come to be prayed for, do that. And then for our Ridge folks, if you're not a teacher, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come, but I want you to come prepared. I don't want you to come going, well, I wonder what's going to happen. What are we going to do besides pray? I want you to come prepared. I want you to spend the next few days in prayer, reading the scripture, and let God reveal to you. Here's a verse that you might pray over all of our teachers, or one or two that you might lay hands on and say, man, I just feel led of the Lord to, to really pray for you and encourage you. So I want you to come with a word of encouragement. Come prepared. So I like what Paul and Barnabas did here. They spent a long time there. Scholars say probably no less than six months 
daily working on these relationships, bearing witness to the word of God. And God did signs and wonders through them so that the gospel would impact the city of Iconium. But in spite of their best efforts to not drive wedges, to build long-term relationships, the division remained. Look at verses 4 through 7. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. By the way, this is the first time they are called apostles in the book of Acts, right here. And when the attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it. They fled to the cities of uh, Laconia and Lystra and Derbe in the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This division escalated toward violence. And in spite of their efforts to build long-term stable relationships, when the attempt was made to stone them, God led them to go to other cities. And what did they do to these other cities in verse 7? They continued to preach the gospel. So what we're going to see in these next few chapters, the persecution is going to get more intense. But the ministry of Paul and Barnabas is going to become more powerful. And we'll start seeing that in these very next few verses in chapter 14, but it's going to continue. So let's take a look at verses 8 and 9. They leave Iconium because of the threat of stoning. They, they go to this other region. They land in the city of Lystra. There's a man sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk. Now, before we get to this healing, I want you to notice something very important about the city of Lystra. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot miss this. So don't tune me out yet. Listen very carefully. Paul and Barnabas have now moved into an area of the world where there was very little, if any, Jewish influence. They are now going to the Gentiles. Lystra was a city almost completely full of Gentiles. No synagogue that we know of, of the Jews in this city. So there wasn't a religious place that they could go to and get an immediate hearing about interpreting the scriptures and the prophets and talking about Jesus as the Messiah. So they've got to figure out how are they going to find the inroads to share the gospel in a Greek town where the message would be so easily dismissed or completely misunderstood. They preached the gospel. But the answer to this was found in a lame man that God would heal, and that's going to open the door. I also think it's very interesting that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he's a medical doctor, he uses three different phrases to tell us this guy was in bad shape. He had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb. He'd never walked. Doesn't that sound like a doctor? He's just emphasizing things here. And he wants us to know for sure this was not some psychosomatic illness. This was a true supernatural healing of the Holy Spirit. 
Now you may remember a few months ago when Jerry preached in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John also healed a man who was lame from birth. They healed him by God's power in Jerusalem. Both of these men were lame from birth. But that's where the comparison ends. One man, Acts chapter 3, was a Jew. This man is Greek Gentile. The first man wanted money. Remember, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. This man had some interest. Paul saw in him that there was some measure of faith. He had the measure of faith to be healed and to be saved. One was near the Jewish temple, right outside the gates of the temple. This man is in close proximity to a pagan temple. You see what God's doing here? Just like last week. The gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for everybody else. It's for the Gentiles, it's for every nation, it's for every lifestyle. Now, how did Paul see this man's faith? I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I'm not sure on that, but certainly Paul had to have had the ability of the Holy Spirit to see this. He fixed his eyes on him. He saw that he had faith to be made well. I think if you will look over the course of your life and some of your experiences, I think you will recall there were times when you were sharing the gospel that you just sensed this person is hungry for God. This person wants to know more. Or even in some cases you know they are ready for salvation. They're ready to cross the line of faith. I think that's something of what Paul sees here. And so he calls on this man to be healed. And as in Acts 3, here in Acts 14, these healings provide an opportunity for the spread of the gospel. Now, again, don't miss this big picture. The big picture is Paul and Barnabas are in a Gentile city. They don't have that natural inroad of going to the synagogue to share the message. And to go to these Gentiles and to talk about Abraham and Moses and David would have been ridiculous. They would have stared blankly at him because they'd had no idea what in the world he was talking about. And also here in the city of Lystra, there was a temple to the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. And to add to the confusion, when God heals this man, God is trying to do something, but it gets confused. The point is, the gospel, which was powerful to save the Jews, is also powerful to save the Gentiles. It can reach those in the synagogue. It can reach those outside the synagogue. It can reach those in the Bible Belt. It can reach those outside the Bible Belt, those who've never heard. But what Paul and Barnabas discover is something we're discovering because we are rapidly morphing into a culture that has a smaller and smaller understanding of the basics of the Bible and the history of salvation. A lot of times when you talk to people, they have no understanding of the Old Testament underpinnings of God's chosen people and, and the coming of a Messiah. And you talk to them about these things, and they'll look at you like, 
oh, that sounds like an interesting video game, you know. And the latest Hollywood movies about biblical things have, have, have added to the confusion and certainly muddled the story of faith. You'll talk to many people on our day, the New Testament, well, you know, isn't that just one of many religious manuals? And if Jesus is known, he's just another moral teacher, right? And so we can learn some valuable lessons here from Paul and Barnabas, not just in these next few verses, but in the remaining chapters of Acts. Let me encourage you not to miss the next sermons for the next several weeks. Because we're going to see this play out, how to lay the groundwork for the gospel in different settings. So when Paul and Barnabas preached to the Jews in the synagogue, they could draw from common knowledge of the Old Testament. In the synagogue, they could talk about the history of Israel, explain the prophecies pointing to Jesus, and everyone there could follow their logic. Whether they accepted Christ or not, they understood what they were talking about. They had a similar religious worldview. But now in Lystra, as in the other Greek and Roman cities they're going to be going to, they're confronted with a biblically illiterate people. Now, the people of, of Lystra were intelligent people. They weren't dumb people. They just had no understanding of the scriptures. They didn't know who Abraham was or Isaac or anything about the Psalms and the prophets. So how do you share the gospel with a group of people who can't connect with what you're talking about? Here at a time when the gospel message could have gotten lost in the mix of pagan beliefs and mythologies, God did something that caused the message of Jesus to stand out. He healed a lame man. But because of the setting, this miracle did not set off this citywide revival, but it caused a great, 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 great misunderstanding that was interpreted by the people's religious worldview. Look at what they did in verse 11, 12, and 13. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying the Laconian language, the gods have become like men. They've come down to us. Where'd they get that? <laughs> that's, what, that's the only thing they knew. How, how do we interpret this? These two men are gods, and they've come down to live among us. And they begin calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. Now the people in Lystra, they, they spoke Greek, but they also had their regional language of Lyconian. And when they saw this healing... They did what many bilingual people do. They expressed themselves in their emotionally charged heart language. I think it's real interesting here. Uh, Paul and Barnabas didn't speak Lyconian. So they don't know what's going on. They, they know the crowd's excited, but they don't know what they're saying. Can you just picture this? You know, this guy's healed and the people are in an uproar and they're going, what in the world's going on here? Now they catch on pretty quick. 
Because with no biblical worldview, the crowds interpreted the miracle based on their mythology rather than the one true God. You know, I'm all for signs and wonders and miracles, but a miracle alone is not enough to bring a person to salvation. Miracles without the context of the gospel will always be misunderstood given the worldview of those who see the miracle. And some of them will say, well, it's Zeus. Others will say it's a coincidence. Some of our friends that we have who have a modern worldview will just say, well, we don't understand it yet, but science will explain it one day. <laughs> right? Now, if you recall Greek mythology, Zeus was the main Greek god. Romans called him Jupiter. Hermes was the son of Zeus. He's also called Mercury by the Romans. So you got Zeus and Hermes, the son of Zeus. Hermes is a guy who always delivers messages for the gods. He does it swiftly. He's the one who has the, the image with the, the wings on his helmet and, and on his shoes. He goes quickly to deliver the message of the God. Um, if you study in our eye growth classes, when you study apologetics or systematic theology, you're going to come across a term hermeneutics. It's how you interpret and study the Bible. It comes from Hermes because Hermes is the one who gives the instructions, the messages. This is not Batman and Robin. We have in our midst Hermes and Zeus. Jerry is Hermes. He delivers a message. Zeus is the old guy who's quiet. You don't hear much about him, but together they make a great team. <laughs> Isabel's going to go, what the heck are y'all talking about when he comes back next week? There's an old, old story in Ovid's Metamorphosis about Zeus and Hermes. They come down in human form and they travel through the very Greek region where Lystra is located. And the story goes that Zeus and Hermes, they go from house to house uh, and no one will let them in. And finally, they come to this elderly couple who lets them in, shows them hospitality. And so the gods turn their house into a temple and they destroy the homes of those who would not welcome them. That's the story on the minds of the citizens of Lystra. They're not making the same mistake. The gods have come down, we're letting them in. We're going to throw a festival, we're going to sacrifice. So the high priest, you know, is ready to show hospitality to the gods. Again, I think Paul and Barnabas knew exactly what was happening at first, but they catch on very quickly. Look in verses 14 through 17. So when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their robes, they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you 
that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without a witness. In that he did good, he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Their first response when they, when they heard this is they, they tore their clothes, a sign of extreme grief in the ancient world, particularly among our Jewish brothers. And it's interesting that Paul and Barnabas, they didn't rip their clothes when they got run out of Iconium. <laughs> uh, that would have been grieving for me. Threatening to stone, they don't tear their clothes. But when they're about to be worshipped, they couldn't stand it because they lived for God's glory, not their own. Let's go back in history one more time. In Acts chapter 12, just a few weeks ago, do you remember an event that Paul and Barnabas witnessed? See, they're not the only ones interpreting things through their own worldview. Here it is in Acts uh, chapter 12. You remember this? On an appointed day, King Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, kept crying out, the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and died. You think Paul and Barnabas remember that? So you got the city remembering one thing. You got Paul and Barnabas remembering something else. And they are very careful to give God the glory. Now notice how they address the crowd. Before, before we dissect this little sermonette, let me, let me cost you something here. Because I don't want to be misunderstood. If you go back in verse 7, it says that when they came to this region, it says very clearly, they preached the gospel. What is the gospel? Short definition, David Bird's definition. We are separated from God by our sin. But Christ came to die on the cross as punishment for our sin. And yet God's raised him up, seated him at the right hand of the Father. And if we repent of our sin, God considers us righteous because the penalty was paid by Jesus. And we will be resurrected from the dead and we will live forever for God. That's my gospel presentation. Verse 7, they preached the gospel. How effectively, I don't know. Because I don't know if the people had the biblical worldview to understand what they were saying. So God causes this man to be healed. And here, you know, when they're, we're about to, to, you know, crown them as the gods come down, he says again, we're men like you and we preach the gospel to you. It appears that Paul and Barnabas kind of change gears with this biblically illiterate people who've created chaos. First thing Paul does, he, he calls them out. He says, we're not gods, we're men like you. And we've told you this gospel, you may not understand it yet, so that you would turn from these vain things. And since the people of Lystra believed in many gods, 
They had no exposure to the one true God. Paul backtracks here and he begins with God the creator. He begins with what, what we would call general revelation. He's going to deal with specific revelation when he shares the gospel. But he, he backtracks here and he says, look, I want to tell you there's not a bunch of gods. There's just one true God. And I want to tell you that this God made everything. Heavens, earth, sea, all this in them. And even though the nations have gone their own way, he's not left himself without a witness. He's been good to you. He's given you rains in the season and fruitful seasons. You know, in, in Greek mythology, you've got gods for all kinds of stuff. You have gods for the harvest, gods for the weather, gods for fertility. And Paul is saying... These good things that have happened to you are not proof of the existence of your gods. It is a witness to the only one true God. So Paul is kind of starting where they are in their spiritual understanding. And you and I in our witnessing, we have to do the same thing. We've got to know our audience. We've got to know the person. We've got to know their story. We've got to know what their worldview is. Or the gospel is not going to make sense to them. You can't talk to a 7-year-old about their sin the same way you can a 27-year-old. You've got neighbors that you're praying for. And one of them may have gone to Sunday school as a child and a teenager and they have some understanding of the scriptures and what Easter is all about you can share with them in a much different way than the neighbor from another part of the country or world who doesn't have a clue to what you're saying and so the message of the gospel never changes but we have to be sensitive to begin on a level of where the hearer is I think it's interesting that in this little sermonette, um, Paul doesn't even mention the Bible. He doesn't even mention Jesus. Some would say what he's doing here is, is pre-evangelism. And that's becoming more and more necessary in our world today. People don't have a fundamental understanding of God the Creator, much less Jesus Christ as Lord of the universe. Many people have no concept of personal sin. Because there's no such thing as sin in our culture anymore, you know. Uh, they have no understanding of God's judgment and what Jesus really came to do. So sometimes we have to take an approach like Paul. We have to carefully think about how do we share without compromising the message of the gospel. Because if we don't make the basic things clear... People are just as likely... To take Jesus and just fit him into their existing belief system. Rather than truly trusting him as Savior and Lord. Does that make sense? I'm not giving you permission to not share the gospel. What I'm saying is you need to know the people that you're talking to. The message never changes. But how we bring the approach often does. Now, in verse 18, to wrap up today's part, and, and Jerry will continue this next week, even saying these things, even backtracking and going back to Creator and there being one true God, trying to lay the basics, it was with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. 
I mean, this crowd was worked up. And as far as we know, at least in this instance, Paul didn't get to finish his sermonette and share salvation. Sometimes we may never get to share our full gospel presentation. And I want to say, sometimes that's okay. You can't run from it. You can't be scared of sharing. But sometimes you just don't get all the way there. After hearing about the humanity of Paul and Barnabas, the falsity of their own gods, I mean, they still wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Their mythology had a strong influence on them rather than the message that Paul was sharing. But... We don't know exactly how. The gospel has been shared in Lystra. It will be shared in Lystra. And we do know God is going to save many people in Lystra in the weeks ahead as we study the scripture. God can overcome any worldview. God can overcome any present misunderstandings people have. God is able to save, and he does. He's always at work saving and growing a people unto himself. As we uh, share, here, here are the main points I want us to walk away with. The first one is, you need to spend a long, long, long time developing relationships with people. To earn the right to share the gospel. To speak into their life. And sometimes you need to just share your story. How you came to faith. They still might look at you kind of blank. Until you find that moment to share the full gospel. And ask them if they're ready to receive Christ. But you need to spend a long time in these relationships. Now if you don't get to share the gospel, don't get discouraged. Because I know sometimes I get all worked up. I'm going to go meet with somebody and I've got it all. I'm going, man, I'm going to you know, share this gospel with them. And this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. And you know, I get there and the conversations go and I don't get to. And I often feel bad and guilty. Well, don't get discouraged. Sometimes you have to back up and explain some basics. Don't get discouraged if you don't. Get to share the gospel. And spend a long, 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 long time on relationships. One of the joys of my ministry here as your mission pastor is um, to get to go with other people from our congregation to visit our mission points around the world. And, um, you know, one of those this past summer was Serbia where the Israels are our missionaries. They're in our midst with us today, and uh, they'll be with us for a while. But uh, my wife, Brenda, joined us, and Natalie is a Gary. And, and uh, we went over there uh, this past summer and worked uh, alongside the Israels to teach English classes. So I want to show you a picture of a, a man that we met, one of many, but uh, his name was uh, Zoran. And uh, it's the other picture, Terry, if we can pull that one up. Zoran came to the, to the English classes. There he is. This is a crazy game we were playing. And, uh, uh, but Zoran's the opposite of me the, on the right there uh, with the blue shirt on. And, uh, you know, 
I was not able to completely share the gospel with Zoran. Part of that was the language. Part of that was just, I didn't have a long, 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 long time to spend. I mean, three, four nights. So, um, I've got to go back. <laughs> now, he did get parts of the gospel. Because in teaching the English classes, Trey and Randy use Bible stories. So we did creation, we did Noah, we did the woman at the well. That's a good one. So it's being shared in, in some ways. But I need to go back and visit Zoran and some other Facebook friends. And what was really neat, the last night we had uh, Texas night, he brought his wife. And at Texas night, we had Texas t-shirts, we gave his prizes, we had chili, and uh, taught him how to line dance. <laughs> so, uh, uh, crazy Texans were there. Now, I didn't get to fully share. We have missionaries there who will be able to follow up, or whoever God puts in Zoran's path, but... I'm responsible for praying for him because I've met him. God's crossed our paths. And through Facebook media or face-to-face -face or whatever, I hope I have that opportunity to share the full gospel. Second picture is Dushan. He's an older teen. He got kicked out of his house by his stepfather. His mom's been in several marriages. And... Uh, Stepdad kicks him out. He didn't know what to do. One of the local believing families, friends of the Israels, took him in. And I believe he lived with his family at least a year, maybe more. A long time. They spent a long, long, long time in this relationship. Challenging his worldview. His religious misunderstanding. And I'm so glad that on your behalf, on behalf of the Ridge, I was able to be there that Sunday as he proclaimed Christ of his Savior and was baptized. Um, so um, you guys get to rejoice with that. And I hope I can just be your eyes and ears uh, on these different things. Spend time, long, long times on the relationships. Share the gospel as quickly as you can. But don't be discouraged if you have to back up and go over some basics. Don't be discouraged if in that setting that you're all riled up to do it, it doesn't quite come about. God desires to use you to bring salvation to the world. Spend time in those relationships to the glory of our Father. Keep reading in chapter 14, 15, say it's going to get better and better as we learn how to walk across the room and share our faith with other people. Let's pray together. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then we're going to come and share in communion. For our guests, our visitors today, thank you for choosing the Ridge to come. Um, there's a visitor's card in the pew in front of you. We'd, we'd love to just shoot you an email of encouragement. So during communion, there's plates up here. You can come and drop that in. For our people who have prayer requests, you can drop in those prayer requests. We, we pray for those as a church and staff. Uh, as you give generously and lovingly um, your tithe and your offering, and you go beyond to, to bless Isabel, you can do that uh, at this point. But then also to come and share in the bread and the juice. Uh, 
Jesus Christ. He crossed a long ways in this universe to come to us. And to make the message understandable to us who could not understand the will of God. And by his teaching and his parables and his life and certainly his death upon the cross for us and his resurrection. He has made known to us that we can be in a right relationship with God. Let's thank him for that as we share in communion. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. All the goodness of it. You are the creator of the world. And help us, Father, to interpret all the goodness um, as coming from the one true God, not from our actions, not from our hard work, whatever gods we believe in. So, Lord Jesus, uh, hear our prayer. Hear our prayers for people who are lost. Hear our prayers for those among us whom you are calling and may feel touched today to give their life to Jesus Christ. We celebrate who you are and we give glory to you, almighty God of the universe. In Christ's name, amen.